0: When you wake up and switch on the radio or television or open your newspaper, you'll be faced with bad news. This is obviously the case as when at present our country is at war, but even when the war is over and we pray it will be soon, the pictures of war in Iraq will be replaced with even more bad news in the headlines, ranging from events like 9-11 to the murder of a child, the outbreak of a mystery virus or a crash in the stock market. The degree to which you're affected by bad news depends on the level of your personal involvement with it. Take, for example, the war in Iraq. Surely every sane person is affected by the death and destruction that war inevitably brings on whatever side the victims may be. However, in the British media, there is more focus and concern for, as of last Tuesday when I wrote this, began to prepare it, for the 26 British soldiers killed than over 1,500 Iraqi troops who have lost their lives or 589 civilians. And if you have a close family member fighting in the conflict, then your concern is even greater And imagine the level of concern if, tragically, you were the family of one of the 26 who has been killed. Bad news becomes devastating news. Bad news, then, is a fact of life. And has been so ever since our first parents rebelled against their Creator and were banished from paradise. A world in which everything was good was infected by something very bad. And so we live with the uncertainty of where the next outbreak of the virus will occur. And even when our lives are brightened by good news, we still live with a lurking fear that we try to suppress or ignore, that it will not last and may be destroyed in a moment by some bad news. The letter from the hospital, the dismissal from the company, the betrayal by a loved one. Now you may complain this is a very pessimistic start to a sermon. Surely we come to church for some relief from the bad news, something to lighten the gloom. Surely the Christian message, is it not gospel, good news? But the light of the Christian gospel good news shines and all the more brightly against the dark background of the world in which we live of which we're a part. And when you become a Christian, when you repent of your sin, when you turn towards God, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not removed from the world of bad news. You will be when you die, or when Christ returns, but not until then. And nor are you immunised from its effects. So, if this is the case, What difference will it make? For example, if the letter with bad news from the hospital drops on the doormat of Mr. Smith the Christian rather than his next door neighbour, Mr. Brown, who is not a Christian. The difference will be seen, should be seen, in how Mr. Smith the Christian responds to the bad news. Mr. Smith, the Christian, has someone to whom he can turn. He knows God. God knows him. And so he can pray with confidence and assurance whatever the bad news may be. But how do you pray when you get bad news? What do you say? Today in our series, People in Prayer, we look, as people already shared with the young folk, at the record of a man who received some very bad news. His name was Nehemiah, and we see him in our series, Mourning Before the Lord. And you'll find it in Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll help to have a Bible. There are Bibles in the pews. If you don't have your own Bible, will you turn then to Nehemiah 1, page 485, if you have a pew Bible? and you're not sure where Nehemiah occurs. If you don't have a few Bible, find Psalms in the middle of the Bible and go back a couple of books and you'll find the little book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Listen carefully because you may be the recipient of bad news and you may, like I may, need to know how to pray when that happens. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, that's the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes of Persia. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. First of all, a little history review to put Nehemiah in context. As we saw last week in the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah and the prayer of Daniel, who we looked at last week, God moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire, to issue an edict permitting any Jews who wished to return home to Jerusalem from their exile. And so in the year 538 BC, of course by later reckoning, the first group of Jewish exiles returned home to Jerusalem. They discovered the city little changed, since the destruction of its walls and temple by the Babylonians 50 years before, in 587. And so these people who returned in 538 had a pretty difficult task, and it took them over 20 years before they managed to rebuild the temple, very small in scale compared to the magnificent Temple of Solomon that had been destroyed. The temple was completed in 516. However, the people were a dispirited group Of returnees, threatened by the local mixed population, vulnerable to marauding outlaw bands. They had no defensive walls to protect the city and so they felt and were very vulnerable. And so half a century later in 458 BC a second group of exiles led by a priest named Ezra returned to Jerusalem to try and address the situation. Ezra's reforms again met with stiff opposition by the local population and their leaders would settled around Jerusalem. And when Ezra began rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem, these enemies sent a letter back to King Artaxerxes, the king, the emperor of Persia, telling him that the Jews were planning to rebel. And the king, persuaded by their arguments, issued a decree that all work on the walls should stop immediately. Not only did this happen, it also appears that their enemies then moved in and knocked down even the walls that they'd started to rebuild. And it is this news that one of the returnees, one of the people in Jerusalem, a man called Hanani, who was a brother or a relative of Nehemiah, brought back to Nehemiah, who was living and working in a place called Susa, which was in the Persian Gulf. There's a map on the screen if you want to know where Susa was. It was the winter residence of the kings of Persia. So in our reading, as we come to it in verse 1, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year of the king, that dates us right back to 446 BC when the work on rebuilding Jerusalem's walls was halted and then Nehemiah finally receives the news and that is the bad news from back home that Nehemiah receives. Look again then at, we see there the dates, we come right down to 446 Nehemiah receives the news and this is the bad news from back home. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates have been burned with fire. And it's to this bad news that Nehemiah responds in prayer, the prayer that follows in verses 4 to 11. He responds to the bad news in prayer. And this morning, I simply therefore want to look at the prayer and I want to point out to you three aspects of how to pray when you get bad news. Three aspects of prayer. Here's the first one. Prayer and emotion. Notice Nehemiah's response when he gets the bad news. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, let's be careful that we don't do what most Westerners do when they read a text like this. We say, oh, well, that's typical of Middle Eastern people. They're very emotional. That's just the kind of thing that they do. When we do that, and we often do say that, don't we? What we're really saying also is, we're explaining why we are not so emotional and even why we are somehow superior in being being able to keep a stiff upper lip no matter how bad the news may be. Now, while it's true that the outward expression of emotion will vary from culture to culture, not many of us would rend our garments and sit in sackcloth and ashes if we get bad news. Nonetheless, every one of us who is human are also emotional beings. We have an emotional component. We are made in the image of God. And the idea of a God who is totally impassive and unmoved owes more to Buddhism than Judaism and even less to the Christian faith. For we worship a Saviour who, when he was on earth, wept at the grave of a friend, was moved with compassion at all the bad things that he saw in a fallen world, He is the one who's described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So my greater concern is the Christian who never appears to be moved by anything. The fact is that all of us respond emotionally to the events of life. Though our emotional range and the degree of our intensity of emotion may vary from person to person. No, the normal reaction, the normal Christian reaction is to express emotions of grief and sorrow. The real question behind all this is what are the kind of things, what kind of bad news makes us mourn? Surely, as we said at the beginning, the closer we are to the bad news, the more intense our response. So while all of us this week, just to take an example, we moved to see that incident that happened, unfortunately, at a checkpoint where a whole family driving through, many people were killed at a checkpoint, in, I think it was in southern Iraq. Our sadness is nothing compared to the pictures in the newspapers of the anguish of Karim Mohammed weeping over the bodies of his own children. So, what are the things that move us to anguish? What I'm trying to get at is, what are the things that really make us upset? Surely the same kind of things that affect everybody else. But is there anything more that makes us upset, that causes us to mourn and grieve distinctively because we are Christians? Didn't Nehemiah, when he got this news, did he mourn simply because it was bad news about his own people, the Jews? in the same way that we would be upset if it was bad news about British people or if you're American, if it's bad news about American people. There is an added dimension which we must see. Nehemiah mourns not just over his fellow Jews, but over them and over the people of Israel because they bear the name of the one true God. Not only are they in disgrace and distress but his great anguish and concern is that the name of God is brought into disgrace and that his name is dishonoured. Those are the reasons for Nehemiah's anguish, the disaster that has befallen the people of God, but the disgrace that has been brought on the name of the Lord. Nehemiah mourns not simply because he belongs to the Jewish nation, but because he belongs to the people of God. And God's name has been dragged through the mire has been brought into disgrace and is still in disgrace because the temple and city that bears his name lies in ruins. This is the added dimension that should cause us to mourn if we belong by God's grace to his people. For Christians, it is that concern for the community which transcends all national barriers. Our concern should be for the people of God throughout the world who bear the name of Jesus Christ. Our concern should be for the church of Jesus Christ and his name, a name which we can, by our obedience to him, bring honour, but by our disobedience we can bring disgrace to the name of Christ. And I simply ask you, first of all this morning, do you have a concern for the church of Jesus Christ? Does the sad and declining state of the Church of Jesus Christ in our land cause you anguish? And the answer is found, not in what we say, because I expect if you're a Christian, you say, oh yeah, that's really bad. Isn't it terrible? All All the reports show the Church is declining. And you look at the state of the Church in our land. But the answer, if you are a Christian, is seen not in what you say, but in what we pray. Are our prayers concerned with our own bad news? Or are our prayers driven by an anguish, a concern for God's name and the name of Jesus Christ? Now, if this is not so this morning, can I suggest there are at least two possible reasons. One is it is possible you don't belong to the people of God. And if you don't belong to the people of God, it is natural that you have no concern for the church of Jesus Christ. The second is, if you are a Christian, that we have failed to see the seriousness of the situation that we're in. I don't think I'm being pessimistic and duly when I describe the state of the church in our land. I think I'm being realistic. And like Nehemiah, we need to hear what the news is to see it as God sees it. And then we'll be motivated to pray. And you can tell whether this is our concern by listening to our prayers, by sitting in our prayer meetings. And what is our primary concern? Is it the name of Jesus Christ, the honour of his name, and the fact that the people among whom we live, most of them have no real knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes and also the terrible situation in which they stand without hope and without God in the world. You may remember when our Lord was on earth at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? because he saw them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, all the disciples saw the same crowds. All they saw was that they were hungry and needed a few miracles because they were ill and sick and so on. But Jesus saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and then he was moved with compassion. And significantly, what did he say? He said, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. And maybe we need to ask this morning, God, to thaw out our cold hearts, to stir our emotions, so that we're moved with compassion and moved to pray. And so Nehemiah, moved with compassion, seeks God in prayer. So notice the second thing about prayer here. Prayer and emotion. Secondly, prayer and petition. In the face of bad news, the person with no living relationship with the living God can only turn either within, consume with inner anguish, or to others who at best can provide sympathy but no real solution to the problem. Or they may in desperation pray, some for the first time. I don't know, maybe you're here this morning in Charlotte Chapel because some bad news has come into your life and you think, I need to try and get help somewhere. That's great that you're here, but you come in and you think, well, can God help? Will God help? But Nehemiah and all those who know the Lord have this great assurance. Nehemiah's name appropriately means the comfort of the Lord. He knows that there is someone who can help. Notice what it says, verse 4. He mourns and fasts and prays before the God of heaven. And it is the Lord of heaven whom he addresses at the beginning of his prayer. Again, you can learn a lot about what people think about God by how they address him in prayer. And the term God of heaven occurs only 22 times in the Old Testament, but 17 of the occasions are found in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah and Daniel. All of them from the period of exile. You see, when the people of Israel lived in Israel... When God brought them into their own land, they were used to addressing him as the Lord, the God of Israel, who'd given them their own land. How do you think of God when you lose your land and you live in exile? Well, you either think the other gods have triumphed and your God is no God at all, or you enlarge your vision of God and see that he is now the God of heaven. And one of the great understandings that the people in the exile came to was to understand that God is not the God of some locality. He is indeed the God of heaven, one who transcended all the nations on earth, was above the earth, above all gods who in reality are no gods at all. So Nehemiah's assurance is that God the Lord is able to help. He is the God of power, the God of heaven. And he goes on to address him as the great and awesome God. Now when you seek anybody for help you need to be pretty convinced that they're able to help. For example, if you got into financial trouble, I can tell you quite honestly if it's a major financial trouble, I would sympathise you but frankly friends I'm not able to help you. I might be able to point you to one or two people who could help you certainly more than I can. And when we come to God it is our conception of God. Is he able to help? Is he up for it? In crude terms, Has he got the resources to help now? Nehemiah is convinced he is a great and awesome God. And in an age of pluralism, a similar age to which Nehemiah lived and in which we live, we need to enlarge our understanding of who God is, the one whom Isaiah the prophet declared as, to whom the nations are like a drop in a bucket, Isaiah 40:15), The one to whom the book of Proverbs says, the king's heart is in the Lord's hand to direct like a watercourse wherever he pleases. When you pray for world events, you need to be assured that prime ministers and presidents, that the Lord can direct their hearts like a watercourse wherever he pleases. So Nehemiah is utterly assured of the fact that the Lord, the God of heaven, the awesome God, is able to help. But there's a second question that then comes. Supposing I have the resources to help you. Supposing I happen to be a millionaire, which I'm not, and you've got a financial need. The second thing you need to know, he's got the money, but will he give me any? Is he not only able to help, is he willing to help? Now Nehemiah is convinced that the Lord is able to help. He's the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, but is he willing to help? Now he has this second conviction. Not only that the Lord is able to help, but that the Lord is willing to help. And like Daniel before him, as we saw last week, if you were here, Nehemiah identifies with the people and their sin. He acknowledges that the exile, their present bad news, is their own fault. It's the consequence of disobedience. Disobedience leads to exile. How does he know that? Because God said so in the agreement that he made with the people of Israel long ago through Moses. He said, if you disobey me and turn away from me, then I will scatter you among the nations. Disobedience leads to exile. And so he confesses the sins of the people in verses 6 through 8. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But Nehemiah knows the terms of the covenant. He knows that God said, if you disobey me, you'll be scattered into exile. But he also knows that the Lord also said, that if you return to me and repent, I will bring you back again from the nations back home. So he knows that repentance leads to return. But if you, verse 9, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are on the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now this is vitally important to understand. You can only appeal to God to do something on the basis that he has already promised to do it. And the promise that, me and my appeals to, is the covenant, the agreement that God made with the people of Israel. He goes back, as it were, to the small print in Deuteronomy 30 and says, Lord, this is what you said to Moses. Now, I'm praying on the basis of what you've said in your word that you will do what you promised. Yes, I agree, we were disobedient and that's why we're in exile. I confess our sin. It was our fault. My fault and my father's house's fault that we're here. But Lord, you also said, if we repent and turn to you, you'll bring us back again. And so Lord, on this basis, on the basis of an appeal to the covenant, these are your servants, your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and by your mighty hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Now the only sure grounds we have that God is willing as well as able to hear and answer our prayers are those that he has laid down and provided. So, let's come forward to us now in the 21st century, two and a half millennia later. On what grounds can we appeal to God to hear and answer our prayers? Not on the basis of the law of Moses. Why not? Two reasons. Most of us are not Jews. Second reason, good reason... Best reason, God has made a new covenant or agreement which supersedes the old one, which is far better. An agreement by which we may come to God in prayer and not just address Him as the God of heaven, but we may pray to Him as our Father in heaven. Who was it said that? Jesus, God's Son. The one who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, if we want to pray in our need, in our bad news, how do we know that God is willing to help us? Only if we come the way that God has chosen for us. Only if we come through the one who is the way, the truth and the life. So, through Jesus, as the New Testament book of Hebrews puts it, written to Jewish people by birth, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4, verse 16. We have a greater assurance of God's mercy. I have to ask you this morning have you got that assurance? Or do you just come to God on the blind kind of thought, Well, I hope He'll hear me. God, help me. God has made a way by which you and I, sinful human beings, may approach His throne of grace, not merit, with confidence through the way that he's provided. And that is what Nehemiah knew and we can know in even greater measure. And now he needs God's help in time of need. Now at this point, with the assurance that God is able, the great and awesome God, the Lord of Heaven, and willing to help the God of mercy and forgiveness, If you're coming to such a God in a situation like Nehemiah, what would you then ask for? What would you pray for? I'll tell you what most of us would pray for, myself included. I'd sit in the prayer meeting and say, Lord, help the exiles. May they be comforted and encouraged. May they know, Lord, that you are with them. And Lord, frustrate the plots of their enemies against them. Or maybe something more general or spectacular. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. But what is interesting is that Nehemiah asked for none of them. Notice how he stops where his prayer is? He's only got one request. This is what he says. Nehemiah's request. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Then he adds for our information, because we haven't learnt it yet, who he is. I was cupbearer to the king. And now we turn to the third and final aspect of prayer, which must follow. Prayer and emotion, prayer and petition. Third one is obvious. Prayer and action. A little background information about the Hebrew calendar. A month. you see it on the screen. I'm not going to read it all for you. The names of the Hebrew months are on the left, and the corresponding dates, times, in our calendar are on the right. Now, the point of the exercise. Look at your Bibles and look at Nehemiah 1, verse 1. When did Nehemiah get the news about Jerusalem? Well, we're told it's in the month Kislev, in the 20th year of the king. All right, that's around November, December. All right? And he began to pray. And at the end of this period of praying and fasting, recorded in verses 4 to 11, he concludes by asking the Lord to give him success today. Do you see that in verse 11? Give your servant success today. And we read in the next verse of the next chapter when today is. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, same year of the king, in the month Nisan. Now the reason I put the chart on the on the screen is you can work it out for yourself. It was four months after he received the news that Nehemiah finally knew what to pray for and what to do. Now this is remarkable on several counts. First of all, it is remarkable given what we know of Nehemiah. His position as cupbearer to the king was no mere sort of steward's duty. It was a very responsible role. There's a contemporary account of at least one cupbearer from this time who was also Prime Minister. At the very best, he was what you might call a top security agent. And as such, and it's revealed later in the book and Pip shared again with the children, he was a man of great organisational skills. He could bring a whole group of people together. He was, in short, your typical organisational action man. Able and willing to take decisions at the highest level. Yet, He spends four months agonising in prayer over what to do or more importantly what the Lord wants him to do. And in the end he finally comes to the conclusion that the key to the situation lies with him personally and he must risk his career and his life on the outcome. And the point is this, serious prayer must always precede action. Some years ago, Brian Gilbert, the evangelist, who was a member in the last church where we served, wrote a book entitled, The Activist's Guide to Prayer. He kindly gave me a free copy and inscribed on the flyleaf, From One Activist to Another, because he knew me well. And we activists find prayer a challenge to our activism. And so if we're not careful... We pray too little and we decide too quickly. Let me say it again. If we are not careful, we pray too little and we decide too quickly. Praying in generalities and finally asking God to bless what we have decided we would like to do. What seems sensible to us but we would do far better to devote ourselves to prayer and to seek the Lord's mind and will when faced with bad news and difficult situations so that we might know specifically what to pray for. Now, I'm not saying that always that is the outcome, but I'm saying that so few of us know of that because we've never actually tried it. We pray for a day or two and then decide what we're going to do. And seeking God seriously... Can and the key which unlocks a difficult situation is the key because it's knowing the mind of God, it is knowing what he lays on our hearts to pray for, then we pray in faith with confidence. Have you ever been confused by those verses in the Bible that says if you ask God for anything in his will, he'll do it in the New Testament, in the epistles? I used to say, begs the question, what's God's will exactly? Have we sought God's mind and will? Serious prayer should always precede action, but it should not preclude action. And it is no easy step. In my experience, when you know what God's will is, it always involves a personal cost to the one who prays. How many people have prayed that God will... How many missionaries I know have prayed that God will send out laborers into the harvest field and find God put his hand on them and say, yeah, and you're the one to go and answer your own prayer. Prayer always involves a cost and it involves a risk. The outcome of prayer in action must be that we take God at his word. So, Nehemiah, this seems to me the plain reading of the text, that Nehemiah has had this burden on his heart now in Persian law it was a capital offence to go into the presence of the king with a sad face and when Nehemiah knew what God's will is I believe on that day he deliberately with his knees knocking went into the king's presence with a sad face no wonder it says he was very much afraid when the king says why is your face sad? You're not ill? It's sadness of heart. What's causing you concern? And Nehemiah shares. What will the king say? Don't forget, this is the same king whose recent edict you know the laws of the Medes and Persians that cannot be changed? This is the same king who's just sent recently an edict to Jerusalem saying, You have to stop building those walls. Now Nehemiah says, The walls are broken down. Send me to the city of Judah where my father's buried so I can rebuild it. A lot's been made of verse four, what's called Nehemiah's arrow prayer. You know, he shot off this prayer to God. But the real key lies in the fact that he spent weeks, months in prayer before, seeking God's will and God's strategy. And large faith produces large actions. Nehemiah embarks on a new career which will further God's purposes for his people. What began, notice the principle here, we're nearly finished, what began with bad news eventually ends with good news. Part of God's plan of history that ultimately leads to the best news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, notice the key, it all hinged on how a man responded to the bad news with sustained and serious prayer. Bad news, good news, prayer is the key. I conclude with the words with which I began. Here's a sobering thought. Every day when you wake up and switch on the radio or television and open the newspaper, you'll be faced with bad news. Nothing will change that until Christ returns. But how we respond to the, good, the bad news will determine the part, if any, that we play in sharing the good news and so speeding the day of the Lord's return, 2 Peter 3:11 puts it like that, as we devote ourselves to prayer in the face of bad news, so that the good news of Jesus Christ and the honour of his name might be extended among our friends, our colleagues, in our church, in our city, in our land, who knows where, until ultimately God's plans are fulfilled. His kingdom does come. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And then, and only then, will it all be good news for ever and ever, world without end. Amen. Let's pray.